This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The Mauna Loa eruption continues along the northeast slope of the mountains with lava flowing out of several active fissures. The Hawaiian Volcano Observatory says the flows are moving at less than one mile an hour and should slow down when they hit flatter ground. Lava is now just under five miles from the Daniel K. Inouye uh, Highway, the, the South Road, and authorities continue to stress that no communities or structures are threatened at the moment. But that doesn't mean Big Island residents weren't worried or outright panicked when learning about the eruption for the first time Monday morning. Here's a voicemail we received from a listener. Hi, my name is Kirk Matos. I live in Hawaii Ocean, the U.S. states on the Big Island of Hawaii. So Hawaii Volcanoes National Parks and the mayor's office knew of a possible eruption. So uh, we got called by my grandson's classmate at about 1 o'clock in the morning to let us know that the volcano has erupted. So there's no civil defense warnings, no public or police warnings at all. And we even turned on the radio, there was nothing. The radio I can understand, but the civil defense and the mayor's office should have done something due to the severity of the eruption in the Leilani Estates, which took hundreds of homes. And to me, the mayor has kind of got a failing grade and from, from the mayor down, a failing grade for alerting the public on such a safety matter. Thank you very much. But another listener emailed this. I live in North Kona. Sunday night at about 1130 or 12 midnight, I got a county civil defense text about the eruption starting. I've deleted that message, so I don't know what time exactly it was sent. I'd signed up to receive the email and text announcements of civil defense messages, road closures, notices, etc. I get daily notices about high winds, surf, road closures. I inform my wife about the start of the eruption. We checked the USGS Hawaii Volcano webpage, looked outside, and could see the red glow on the mountain. Then we went back to bed at about 2 o'clock since the lava was contained in the caldera. Thank you for the wonderful conversations and inform people that you have on every day. Aloha, Kona resident. You know, and all that got us curious as to how other Big Island residents first reacted to the eruption news. So we reached out to several people and connected with Melinda Brocious. She's been a Hawaii Island resident for over 30 years and has lived in several areas that at one time or another were threatened by volcanic eruption. For the last 10 years, she's lived on her one-acre property in Hawaiian Ocean View Estates on the south end of the island. The Conversations Russell Subiano got her thoughts on the Mauna Loa eruption this morning. What is it about that part of the island that you like so much? Is it the natural beauty or is it less population? What I like about Ocean View is, well, I was able to come in here and buy an acre of land and it's just comfortable. It's more land and I'm able to farm it and I have good neighbors. I'm lucky. I have good neighbors. I have trees and good soil. That sounds like a dream set up to me. Yeah, it, it's nice. Some areas aren't so good, though. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm very fortunate. I found a good area and good neighbors. Let's talk about the eruption. When did you first learn about the eruption? Was it when you woke up Monday morning? <laughs> uh, one of my sons lives on the upper portion of the property, and he came down and woke me up and told me about it. That's how I found out. One of the neighbors called him and he came down and woke me up and told me about it. What was... Other than that, we had no warning. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've heard that from a handful of, of Big Island people. What was your son's... What was his demeanor? Was he worried or, or was he frantic or anything like that when he woke he you was, up? Uh, he just turned on the light and said, Mom, Mom, you need to come out and talk to me. 
he was very careful how he talked to me, mm. so he didn't startle me. Yeah, I imagine and, uh, so, being yeah. woken up with that, that news it could be startling. And, and what was your reaction when he delivered the news to you? I, I think it was, I, it was something that we were expecting anyway to happen. So rather than, it, I wasn't frantic or anything like that because we were already kind of expecting it. I already had some things semi-packed because over time we've been told that it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. So it was like, "Uh uh-oh, okay, well, let's get going. And we just kind of took care of business. We just started packing things up. You know, I mean, we were concerned, but, but none of us freaked out. We just started taking care of business. What do we need to do first? We kind of like looked at each other and it was sort of, okay, well, what do we do now? And started gathering up things and taking care of business. We have animals and belongings and sort of it's at that point where you realize what really doesn't matter in your own home and what you have to get out. It it was pretty amazing, actually. And I talked to your daughter briefly that morning via social media, and she indicated that you were packed and you were ready. Did they close a road down there? Um, we were told that one of the roads on the highway was closed, but then we were told that it wasn't. So I really honestly can't tell you for sure. We weren't going to evacuate unless they absolutely said we had to, but uh, we were told that Mililii on the highway was closed, that they were making people go the other way on the highway. But then again, other people said, no, it wasn't. You just instinctively knew that you needed to be prepared for for uh, an evacuation just in case. Yeah, because we were told once it blew, it was coming. And we were also told that once that happens, you have approximately, what, three hours if it comes our way. Okay. So it was totally unexpected that it was going to go, what, it was northeast where it's, where it's going now. Right. I mean, that's that's an absolute blessing that it's going where nobody's living. It is flowing down the northeast slope of the mountain, which is flowing in the opposite direction of, of where you live. So was there a point on Monday or Tuesday where you realized that you weren't in danger from the lava flow and you were able to kind of relax a little bit? Yes and no. You know, you relax, but you realize that at any point it could decide to open up a fissure or whatever and still come this way. So we still have everything ready to go. So all this does is give us time to prepare better if it does decide to come this way. Because it still could. It's still active. Right. right. And I, I talked to the USGS yesterday, and even even they, to a certain degree, feel like it's unpredictable at this point. And so they're kind of monitoring all areas just in case something different happens. So I know that there have been warnings through the newspaper and and through TV news and for the last handful of weeks that an eruption could happen. They don't know where where the flow would go, but everybody needs to be on alert. Do you feel like the warning siren should have gone off or do you think there should have been some other way that you were warned when the eruption did happen? Oh, absolutely. I think they definitely failed in that manner there should have the tsunami warning should have gone off something should have happened i mean you know we found out through word of mouth and it's it, there should have been something that that told us 
the area in Ocean View, are there a, a lot of homes in there? Are there homes on large pieces of property? Is it Would it have been feasible for people to go door to door down there or or would something like a tax alert, would that have worked better? I don't think it was really feasible for them to go door to door. This is something like 10,000 acres, I believe, Mm -hmm. something like that. But a lot of people panicked out here. You could hear it. We were just kind of watching and, and listening to the mayhem that was going on. Somebody was honking their horn, running up and down the street with with their vehicle, just honking, honking, and you could hear, you could just hear mayhem going on out there, and a lot of people self-evacuated, which I didn't see the purpose in in that, but a lot of people did do that, so, yeah, it sounds, and I guess they went, sorry, go ahead, excuse go ahead. me, go, go ahead, sorry, um, I'm, I'm sorry for interrupting, you no, know, I mean, they, they did, a lot of people panicked, and uh, went wherever they chose to go, but uh, the neighbors and us, we all just kind of stayed together because at, at that point if you leave too soon that's when uh, the thieves do come in and help themselves you, you have to look around at your house and figure once you evacuate you pretty much kiss everything you have in your home goodbye whether it's lava or thieves right there were a lot of those stories that came out of the 2018 eruption if the lava didn't take your house then i know there were a lot of stories of looters coming through the neighborhoods and trying to to get what they could get. And speaking of the 2018 eruption, I know that a lot of people in the Ka'u and the South Kona areas were impacted by the vog and ash from that eruption. Are you currently being impacted by any ash or gas plume from the Mauna Loa eruption? No, not at all. Not yet. Okay. Mm, Hopefully not. In fact, it's clear and beautiful today. Was there anything that you took away from that 2018 erupt- eruption that you think made you better prepared for this one? Do you feel like you were better prepared because the Big Island had an eruption just a few years ago? Probably made me more aware. But this isn't, you know, I've been on the island for over 30 years. So uh, I was, I've been here through a few of them. So I'm always aware when, when the volcano goes off, you take it seriously. Yeah. Not a joke. Yeah. Yeah. I I remember I was just, I was real young when the last time that Mauna Loa erupted back in 1984. And it's definitely uh, something to be very cautious about. But at the same time, it, it's kind of, it's kind of an amazing thing to see happen. Do you have that feeling? Do you, do you, are you, is there some sort of any kind of excitement or any kind of wonder to know that this this volcano that hasn't erupted in 38 years is now erupting. Oh yeah, it's it's beautiful to see. I mean, it's amazing, and I think it's a like I said, it's a it's a blessing that it ha- it's going in a direction that it's not harming anybody, so people can go and see it and see how beautiful it is and an act of nature that is just amazing. Well, thank you so much for talking to me this morning. You take care. That was Big Island resident Melinda Brosis talking with HPR's Russell Subiono about her response after first learning of the Mauna Loa eruption. If you have a story to share about your reaction to the eruption, let us know via our talkback line, 808-792-8217, or email talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And stay tuned to HPR for continued coverage of the eruption. We'll have updates as they become available.
Red Hill Spill, not jet fuel or diesel. This time it's the dreaded firefighting foam. The foam is made up of contaminants known as forever chemicals. That's the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Christina Jedra on the line today. Good morning, Christina. Hi, Catherine. Good to be here. Yes, so we got wind of this uh, late yesterday. So tell us more. So approximately 1,100 gallons of this toxic fire suppressant foam leaked at the Red Hill fuel facility uh, yesterday. Um, This is really nasty stuff. It has uh, chemicals in it known as PFAS that are linked to cancer and other health problems. And um, it's unclear, I think, now what exactly caused it. The Navy hasn't um, shared much information, but um, they're working now to clean up the mess. And we understand that there's going to be a a news conference, an update later this afternoon, hopefully, to to share the information. Right. Hopefully we'll learn a little more about how exactly this happened and what they're doing to respond. Um, We do know that the chemicals got into the soil um, around the Red Hill fuel facility, so... I know that they're they're working to to clean that up. So this happened like midday yesterday. Um, you know, how soon did they let everybody know? So the Navy said that um, firefighting crews arrived at the scene around 1 p.m. The health department said they found out about it around 3 p.m. And when I called the Board of Water Supply just before 5, they didn't know about it yet. So it was um, kind of slow, and the Navy didn't actually acknowledge it until later in the evening. They had a kind of late press conference for us to give us the basics. Yeah, that was like late in the evening, like 8.30 at night or something like that. Exactly, yeah. So, gosh, so we don't know if it's that same uh, uh, pipeline that they had issues with uh, a year ago, right? Almost almost exactly right. a year. The, the Red Hill um, firefighting system has been dysfunctional for some time. I mean, the whole facility has had problems in terms of maintenance uh, and upkeep and leadership, but the firefighting system in particular um, has been a source of issues. So there's two parts of the firefighting system, an older one from decades ago and one that was installed in 2017 and expanded in 2019. And in that newer system, they actually had a leak that required repair last year. Um, I got a memo uh, via the Navy that ordered repairs on that and that occurred in the same area of the incident yesterday whether that has any correlation to what happened yesterday um, I'm not sure the commander of Navy Region Hawaii wasn't familiar with the, that particular leak when I asked him about it yesterday well uh, first thing I thought of was okay are there cameras in that area are the cameras working uh, is there video of exactly what happened <laughs> Right. Yeah. They haven't mentioned that. I will definitely ask them about that this afternoon. Um, Yeah. In the past, when we asked about uh, visuals, they said the cameras weren't working. And later we were able to get some footage taken from somebody's phone of the fuel leak. Um, I haven't heard anything about visuals of this. Yes. I believe that you folks were the first ones to uh, actually, you know, show us that visual, uh, which was pretty (laughs) uh, eye-opening. But yeah, lots of questions, right? Uh, Is this a a line PVC? Was there a crack? Uh, Was it a a valve that just somehow got open? 
Right. The Navy at this point hasn't given any specifics on that. They're just saying it's under investigation. Um, Hopefully we'll learn more today. But, you know, it's just, I think, disheartening for a lot of people to hear another issue at Red Hill when, you know, they haven't even resolved the past three problems that have occurred there. Um, And they're trying to defuel this facility. There's still 100 million gallons of fuel sitting in the Red Hill tanks. Um, And, you know, things like this certainly don't inspire confidence for people that they're going to be able to remove that stuff safely. And, you know, I recall that uh, they actually uh, removed somebody from a position, you know, when we had that uh, inadvertent spill, you know, uh, gosh, about six months ago, a year ago, maybe. Uh, And so, yeah, you wonder if someone's going to be disciplined for this, because there was a lot made about hey, this is fuel, it's not, you know, this bad stuff, it's not this uh, foam, but now there is a spill, although it has not contaminated the water, but some fear that it might at one point. Right. As as far as we know, according to the health department, they're saying the, the water supply should be fine. But the thing is, the chemicals that are in this firefighting foam, they don't go away. They don't break down in the environment. They are really stubborn, nasty chemicals that um, they don't disintegrate like some like something organic would. Um, so there's definitely cause to be concerned, um, but hopefully they do a thorough cleanup and we'll definitely be following the story closely. So we'll keep you updated. Yeah, you want to make sure that uh, the folks that, uh, that come in contact with the stuff are, are fully protected. But uh, thank you so much, Christina. Thank you, Catherine. That was reporter Christina Jedra with today's reality check. Uh, read her story uh, on this uh, by going to vis- uh, civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the National Kidney Foundation of Hawaii, accepting vehicle donations for its Kidney Cars program, helping to reach the more than 200,000 island residents at risk of or affected by kidney disease. KidneyHI.org. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bite Mars Cafe, we catch up with the executive director of Hawaii Green Growth and find out what is planned for 2023. With the annual partnership event completed, what are the next tactical steps to achieve the UN Sustainable Development Goals? That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. Support for HPR comes from Haleakala Ranch with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to restore, maintain, and preserve the open vistas and natural beauty of Maui. More at HaleakalaRanch.com. is the conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omoloka, olana, omau, 
In today's Backyard Quiz, we're closing out the month of November and gearing up for December by getting into the holiday spirit by thinking of Christmas presents and Santa and reindeer. Hawaii has no reindeer, but we do have two species of deer. The first is originally from South Asia, and they were released on Molokai in 1867 after they were gifted by the Hong Kong Trading Company of Jardine Matheson to King Kamehameha V. In 1959, they were introduced to Maui by territorial legislation for recreational hunting. Then, in 1961, a second species was introduced to Kauai. The effects of deer have been detrimental to Hawaii's indigenous environment as they damage crops and native vegetation and multiply quickly without natural predators. And although a precise number of deer remains unknown, state government estimates uh, put the Maui deer population alone at 60,000. For today's Backyard Quiz, can you tell us which two species of deer now call Hawaii home? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag from HPR. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits that help to strengthen the community and help underserved families, such as Hawaii Literacy. NairitHawaii.com. The Office of Hawaiian Affairs is refocusing its efforts on its lands at Kaka'ako Makai. It's reclaiming its history, renaming the area Hakuone, and tonight kicks off a series of meetings to get input on the future of the area. This morning we talked to OHA CEO Sylvia Hussey and COO Casey Brown about the vision for the 30 acres that, of land that OHA received as a ceded land settlement from the state. We wanted to approach it with the naming. As you know, naming in the Hawaiian culture is a very a very special, a very thoughtful, a very intentional process. And when names are given, whether you know for people or places, these are the kinds of very thoughtful and you think about what has happened there, what is aspired to happen, especially in if you're naming a child and you're naming a place or you're naming a home. You think about what has happened there, what you aspire to happen there. And we often know that in children or in names, people grow into their names. The names carry meaning and the names carry kuleana um, as well. And so starting culturally with the names was an important factor for OHA to be able to then start to frame um, what we see in the vision. And similar to everything, you know, uh, Hawaiians do is we always look to the past to inform our future. And looking to the past includes the place names, again, what was there, and then what we see in the future. So that's why starting with the name, even after, you know, 10 years of having this, is an important first step. And once we've paid that, now we're ready to move forward to have a more thoughtful conversation 
in that area. And while 10 years does seem like a lot, you just don't move quickly forward just to move quickly forward. You move forward with purpose and intention. And that's what we're trying to do. And sometimes it may be too slow, but for us, that intention is really important as we move forward with something this large with this much kuleana. And OHA has been working on a master plan for this area, you know, now to be known as Hakuone, right? We just started to work on a master plan. The first steps of any master plan is due diligence. So we really took steps in help with contracted consultants to study the land that we have. It, it took a lot of um, assessment, you know, going back to historical documents because we've been trying to get these plans not only activated but to get them to be a a, a well-valued asset for our beneficiaries. But the only thing that can do that is if we, we look at it at its highest and best use. But as we're starting to develop this master plan, it first started with a big push to do all our due diligence. There's a lot of issues with any land anywhere on, in our Hawaii state. And so our lands are no exception. We have to uncover what issues that are there that have always existed there and then figure out a way on how to manage those issues. I think the big hurdle, though, is going to be the zoning You've got to get the lawmakers to to change the law because right now, you know, you're limited by what you can do, you know, because there's no residential that's allowed past Alamoana Boulevard. Oh, 100 uh, percent. That, that's part of our kuleana as land stewards for our beneficiaries um, is to be able to realize the, the value of these lands, which were given to OHA to satisfy past due debts by the state of Hawaii. To realize that value re- requires the right zoning to be in place. With, without that right zoning, without permitted uses to build residential, for example, we will never realize the, the value of that land. We've heard everything from, you know, housing to businesses that could generate revenue uh, for the Lahui. So first and foremost, OHA is looking at these properties to be a Hawaiian sense of place, and that that's going to anchor our, anchor our vision for that place. Like, how do we ensure that whatever we do, it becomes a Hawaiian sense of place. We, we don't want to limit our options as well. So in bringing about a Hawaiian sense of place, we, we want to incorporate a live, work, and play concept there. So that means mixed use. That means we hold residential uh, in a high place, in high regard, and especially affordable um, as we think about type of residential we want to build. But we also envision mixed use there, so retail. We also envision ways to bring about that Hawaiian sense of place, cultural center. And how do we do that in a way that makes sense? You know, we have to balance the needs for our beneficiaries. We have to balance proper stewardship of our our assets. You know, we can't just send money to build what we want to bring out this Hawaiian sense of place. We have to make sure we we earn enough money and we balance our budget to be able to do that building. We, we're not going to just spend the money out of our portfolio. It has to make business sense as well. Does OHA plan to introduce legislation to uh, begin that process of uh, allowing mixed use? We haven't gotten approval from our board yet, but the plan is to, to explore residential possibilities and potential and let our board decide whether they want to pursue that this coming legislative session. And I would say in addition to that, Catherine, that this is to pursue again because in in the legislative session in 2021, we already pursued a residential, you know, uh, to allow residential uses there. We also pursued height increases there to benefit. And 
what is good for the things that we are advocating for are good for everybody, all the owners and all the parcels. We're not the only ones there on that side of Ala Moana. And so we approach it as what is good for Hawaiians is good for Hawaii, you know, to have mixed use, which we already have approvals for. We can already pursue commercial as well as any other kind of allowable mixed use purposes. So I see it as we've already started that signals and, and very clearly what the desire is there in Kakaokamukai, the specificity of those um, parcels. And the 2023 actions that Casey is talking about with the board is, again, two years have gone by. We have received more information. We have received, you know, more insights into the condition of the acreage that we received. And so to finally put that forward in some legislative measure is for the board to decide before the end of the year. So we anticipate that that will come to the board very soon. And OHA does plan to launch a series of town hall meetings, uh, you know, on this. You've got a meeting later tonight with uh, certain uh, stakeholders. Can you tell us anything more about the time frame? So we have three community meetings planned over this month and and December. And then we have three virtual town hall meetings that are slated. Um, And those town hall meetings, we're going to try to squeeze one in in December. And then the following two will happen in the beginning of the new year. Okay, so these are folks, you know, whether you live down in that area or just uh, just care about the future of that area, you're looking for input from everybody. Exactly. Yeah, we want we, we want that input. Um, the virtual town halls will be open open to the public. The community meetings are where we're targeting certain community groups and community figures. But just anything you want to say just about the current uses now? I think like any good steward, you are stewarding existing and maintaining and ensuring that you're running that at uh, with a business view and then you're also planning for the future. So I see it as a simultaneous equation, if you will, that you have a number of variables that are moving in different tangents, time space, and our trick is to ratchet the variables to where it needs to be with the outcome that we have a vibrant economic engine that is a live work play and that simultaneous equation takes a lot of depth and patience and sometimes you know people may not be as patient with OHA like my gosh you got you know you've had this for 10 years what the heck but the long view is always Lahui view and Lahui view is at least a 25 year view so to make decisions in a hurried fashion is not good business practice making decisions in a timely fashion is absolute good business decision as well. So I would say that, you know, our critics may may say, and they're going to say what they say, but OHA is being very intentional about this asset. In addition to, this is just a portion of the settlement. Ten years and aggregated, our bill last year was another $638 million in back um, public land trust revenues that are due just in that 10-year period. So there are simultaneous efforts going on. Kakakomokai is absolutely an asset that we are focused on. And so are our other commercial properties 
and so are the justice regarding the public land trust. So it is a simultaneous equation that we're trying to balance very in a timely manner, in a deaf manner, but also in a porno manner. And what about and what about the issue of climate change? Climate change yeah. is definitely in our on our radar, um, and so in any development plans and future plannings, we we've, we are gathering intel. You know, there's experts out, out here that have um, material on that that we're connecting with. Um, and really it's, with the climate change for, for our parcels, we have to be concerned about any kind of flooding, right? So as the, the sea level rises, whenever we have a storm, you know, years in the future, they have 100-year models and and 200-year models that are being projected right now. And so we rely on some of that input. And so we have to, there's ways to develop and plan um, for that kind of climate change factors. And I would say building on, you know, Casey's point, climate change isn't just OHA's issue, right? It's the entire south shore of the island. It is um, all of Hawaii. To be concerned as an island state, we also be concerned about the impacts of climate change. So to that point, we're as responsive as any other landowner on the shore. Um, but it shouldn't be the, like it's only OHA's responsibility. It's all our responsibility to be mindful of that kind of. And from uh, the university and others who are there who are already thinking about that, proposing designs, the city, um, you know, climate change commission. There are many people working on this effort and putting forward models, information, and being collaborative. Um, our participation on the state mitigation commission is also a part of that um, effort. So that's how we're approaching climate change, being a part of the community to solve that for all of you know our needs here in Hawaii. We have been hearing from OHA CEO Sylvia Hussey and COO Casey Brown about plans for the 30 acres of land that it owns at Kaka'ako Makai that they have renamed Hakuone. Check OHA's website to learn more about the planned public meetings over the next few months. On the long view today, there is a spike in crime nationally after a drop during the pandemic. Our contributing editor, Neil Milner, is in our studios to chat about this. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. Good. <laughs> so so tell us uh, about this uh, trend that we're seeing across the country. Well, this is a piece in Atlantic magazine. It's very easily available by Patrick Sharkey, who is a criminologist who's written about this for a long time. And he says the crime spike is no mystery. And this is what he means. He said, first of all, crime has spiked uh, more places in some more in some places and less in others. But there's been an increase uh, uh, certainly since the lockdown from the pandemic. It's been, but there's a number of cities have some very significant uh, increases in uh, violent crime, in the homicide rate. In lots of cities like Hawaii, where the rate hasn't gone up very much, there still is an increased concern. It's become on, a, on people's minds once again. Sharkey said, that's true. 
And let's put that aside for a second, and I'll get back to it, he says, and we'll get back to it about short-term fixes or quasi-fixes to do it. But he said, here's what you also have to know, that that crime has spiked up and down over the years. It's been relatively low. The homicide rate dropped precipitously over the past few years until this post-pandemic thing. It's been relatively low. It goes up, it goes down, but one thing has stayed the same for many, many years, and he uses Chicago as an example, and that is that the same neighborhoods have the highest violent crime rate. The same neighborhoods. Now think about that. It's not the neighborhoods change in the sense that people move in, people move out, there are different kinds of policies, the life goes on. But the same neighborhoods are high crime now, and he uses Chicago because Chicago is not that high a crime city. It had that kind of violent crime rate. Um, the same neighborhoods in the in 65 years ago are that were the crime rate, the high crime rate in Chicago as they are now. Um, in in Milwaukee, the same area that was um, pretty marginalized back uh, about that same time, high crime now. So Sharkey said, listen, he said, it's not a spike exactly. It's a long-term process. And if you really want to deal with the crime issue, you can worry about the, the quick fixes now, but you have to understand that there are very profound and stable reasons that have to do with neighborhoods that you normally don't think about when you think about crime, unless you can intervene in the processes that have created this this overall crime process of the same neighborhoods staying high crime, whatever else goes on, you're not going to ultimately get very far in dealing with the crime. You'll keep having the spikes and, and so on. So why is that? He said, the reason is not so much, it's not about the usual law enforcement stuff. It's about the fact that over time, certainly over the last 60 years, American politics, American economics, American demographics have created situations that have totally marginalized neighborhoods in, 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 in cities. That the neighborhoods um, that have high crime neighborhoods have it historically because of government policies, because of redlining, because government policy encouraged people to move to the suburbs if you were white and got a mortgage and discouraged people who were African-American to move to the suburbs if you were black, of course, uh, because they didn't believe in, in, in racial mixing. So you began to get a kind of segregation and a kind of marginalization by income over time. And what happens is that the city's government essentially gives up on the city as a place for renewal and for growth. Urban renewal, as anybody who's lived here, means something very weird and something that didn't work very well. It meant destroying homes. It meant destroying homes rather than rebuilding because you couldn't get money to, uh, to remodel your home. So what Sharkey says happens is that by the 1970s, the city's problems have become law enforcement problems. Essentially what's happened is that you've dumped on the cops 
the the problems that emerge from a city in which things are ignored, in which social isolation gets worse. The cops become the neighborhood guardians. Prison and 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 crime. Now, don't even think in terms of soft on crime, hard on crime. If you dump that kind of primary role on a police officer, if you make social problems into law enforcement problems and it pretty much ignore the rest, what you're going to have ultimately is an isolated, crime, more crime-prone neighborhood that has lost its capacity to come together, to form the kind of groups and social forces and social infrastructure that holds a neighborhood together. Yeah, I think I shared that, that in New York, I remember there was a time where they had squads of cars driving around with their sirens on just to show their presence. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, because it, but that's, that's a very good example if you show visible presence. Now, look, that, you can think about some of that as a short-term intervention. It doesn't, it may, it works, often it doesn't work, but the point is that it's short-term, that you're basically putting your, your, you know, your finger into the, into the Dutch to hold the water back. So Sharkey says, essentially, if you want to deal with, with crime, you've got to deal overall with this equality argument. Now, you know, here's where you get into the kind of unsophisticated politics about being soft on crime or it's about bad individuals and so on. You don't have to go there. If, if this becomes a liberal versus conservative argument, we're, we're essentially down the toilet like we are with a lot of liberal conservative arguments. I think what Sharkey says, it's, imp- it's important to rethink what, what's happened to cities uh, over time. And what's interesting about this finding is that it fits into all kinds of things that we now know about about. Uh, the power of neighborhoods, the stable power of neighborhoods, how they stay the same even with new people moving in and old people moving out, um, and that you have to begin to think about groups and cohesion and what it is about a neighborhood that makes a difference. There have been all kinds of good research on that. There's a whole movement called localism that emphasizes these kind of things, the need to bring people together at the grassroots. So, he said, think about that. If you want to think about short-term interventions, we know a few things that might make a difference right now. Um, You have these violence intervention projects where there's a group of people who go into areas where either violence has taken place imminently or right away or that imminent. There's a lot of those uh, kind of things in the city. Certain kind of policing techniques having um, maybe the presence of, he says, a boys and girls club, the way we have just a couple of miles from this studio, um, those things can make a difference. And there, you, you know, it's, he, he doesn't want you to, to be unsympathetic. He doesn't want you to be seen as some person living in a quiet suburb saying, why are all these people worried about crime? Yeah, well, even, but here in Hawaii, I mean, I, re- I went to, to, to bed, you know, after seeing something on the news where they're talking about safe places and where people want to, you know, carry their guns and when yeah, oh sure. Stuff. Well, I mean, that's a whole that argument gets tied in there with the, the Second Amendment. I, I mean, I, you know, I'm personally on the side that says I would feel safer without people without having guns than with. But that argument all gets mixed up in here, and and um, if you want to argue about the best way to defend yourself. Or if you want to spend time arguing about what the new gun regulation should be, that's okay. 
I'm not going to say anything one way or the other about that. But what I am going to say is that that doesn't deal with if you know if if the gun rights people think that the kind of carrying your weapons is enough to deal with the with the overall crime problem. That's naive, and it's a pretty simplistic answer. Maybe in the short run. They, they, you know, they, they have an explanation for what it's going to do. But in the long run, if you want to deal with crime, you've got to make cities better. You have to make cities better in good old-fashioned ways that brings back a lot of sense of community. Uh, that's not necessarily just gentrification. But right. that's, it's, it's, you, you, whenever we have a crime crisis, everything focuses on the short term, understandably, on trying to deal with it. You and I mm-hmm. were saying about if you look at the Nextdoor website, this is what that's about. That's that's understandable. But if you want to see it overall, that's not going to do it. The crime rates will go up, they'll go down, but you'll still see the same neighborhoods that are problematic. Yeah, well, I still support my neighborhood watch. <laughs> yeah, well, neighbor, I mean, neighborhood yeah. watch can do some stuff. That's yeah, right. Yeah. But again, you live in an area where it's pretty easy to mobilize people. Right. Well, thank you very much. You're Neil. welcome. Take care. We've been hearing from our contributing editor, Neil Milner. Look for links to the Atlantic article on our website later today. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the new Hawaii Island Community Health Center, providing comprehensive health care open to all. Learn more at hicommunityhealthcenter.org. For years, Amazon hit its safety record. They said safety is the priority, but safety was second to productivity. And our reporters found the numbers to prove it. Your injury was one of 422 injuries. That's crazy. Delivering safety at Amazon on the next Reveal. Beginning this evening at 7, following Mike Mark's Cafe. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. Well, I breathe at the universe this is the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. Several endemic birds make their homes on Mauna Loa, including a small population of Oma'o. These little birds are one of the last remaining native thrush species in the islands. Here's the University of Hawaii at Hilo Professor Patrick Hart with your Manu Minute. Ma'o, or Hawaiian thrush, is found only in the native rainforests of the Big Island. It's a mostly gray and brown robin-like bird that loves to eat fruit from a variety of native trees and shrubs, and plays a big role in helping disperse the seeds of these species throughout the forest. Ma'o have one of the loudest and most recognizable songs of any Hawaiian forest bird.
They have a huge repertoire of songs, and every individual sings differently. All the Hawaiian Islands used to have their own species of thrush, but unfortunately, Kauai is the only other one where they've not yet gone extinct. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the Biology Department at UH Hilo. Support for Manu Minute comes from the Waiakea Water Kokua Initiative, dedicated to helping in the areas of education, conservation, and kupuna care throughout the Hawaiian Islands. Learn more at waiakea.com. for your backyard quiz answer. We asked you to name the two species of deer living in Hawaii. The first uh, species came to Molokai from India in 1867 at the request of King Kamehameha V. They were gifted by Hong Kong's Jardine Matheson Trading Company. Deer was then introduced to Oahu around 1898 and to Lanai in 1920. In 1959, the first deer were released on Maui at the request of the territorial legislature for recreational hunting. While the Oahu population eventually died out, deer now run rampant in Maui County, nearly destroying the unique dryland forest of Lanai. A second deer species was introduced to Kauai in 1961 by the State Hawaii Fish and Game Division. And while they don't have the same impact on crops and native vegetation, they do feed largely on invasive plants like strawberry guava, thimbleberry, and passionflower, which help spread those seeds. If you're a fan of Hawaii's fauna or if you're a hunter, you probably know that we're talking about the access deer that inhabit Maui County or the black-tailed deer from the Pacific Northwest that now reside on the Garden Isle. And congrats to our winner, Judy Hall Jack, uh, Jacobson from Ocean View. You got it right. That's our quiz for today. If you have something you'd like to share about our backyard, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Well, we're out of time, but up tomorrow, we hear about how the Hawaii National Park Service is dealing with the volcano eruption. What are your thoughts about this latest eruption? Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email works to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can find the Conversation Podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.